This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, this week, we will be focusing on things to hopefully improve a person's inpatient stay. John, welcome from Calgary. Hey, Mike. How are things in Toronto? Not terrible, which is actually relatively pretty good these days. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's good. If that's what you can say, that's never a bad thing. <laughs> I agree. All right, John, let's hop in. What do you have up for us first today? Uh, so the first paper is looking at the effectiveness of oxycodone hydrochloride versus combination Tylenol and codeine for subacute pain after fractures that are managed surgically, a randomized control trial. And this was published in the JAMA Network Open, uh, November 2021 by Jenkin et al. All right. And what was the research question here? They wanted to know, does a strong opioid, in this case oxycodone, provide better analgesia than a mild opioid when taken post-discharge among patients who underwent orthopedic surgical treatment? Yep, we have an opioid epidemic, so this seems pretty relevant. Um, what caught your eye on this one, though? Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, of course, opioids uh, are an important component of acute pain management. Uh, and it turns out that actually orthopedic surgeons are among the top prescribers of opioid analgesics. Um, we know that uh, initial opioid exposure is associated with increased risk of longer term use, misuse, as well as risk for overdose. And so, of course, it could be really important to consider stepping down from you know a stronger opioid to something milder at the time of discharge um, if pain is still reasonably well controlled and if that might help to minimize risk of you know, use, misuse, overdose in the future. Yep, I'm sold. What was the study design here? So this was a double-blinded randomized control trial. Uh, it was oxycodone versus a combination of Tylenol and codeine. And this was given uh, as an over-encapsulated medication in sealed medication packages. I guess uh, it was done in Australia and they indicated that they didn't have an oxycodone and Tylenol combination option to offer. So that's why it was kind of oxycodone in the one arm versus codeine and Tylenol in the other. Anyways, uh, participants were admitted to one major trauma hospital in Sydney, Australia, with at least one fracture needing surgical treatment from July 2016 to August 2017. They included non-pathological fractures of long bones, pelvis, patella, calcaneus, talus, and they had to be treated surgically. Ages were 18 or older. They excluded multi-system trauma, a known or suspected major infection post-op, known or suspected opioid dependence. Uh, pregnant women were also excluded, um, and they were also excluded if there's a contraindication to steady treatment. So for the procedure itself, um, prior to enrollment, patients had been prescribed oxycodone well in hospital, and this was in an immediate release uh, five or 10 milligram tab that could have been taken four times a day. Some of the patients were then stepped down to uh, codeine and Tylenol, which was given as a um, Tylenol 500 codeine 8 milligram or Tylenol 1000 codeine 16 milligram tab four times a day. And they were given a two-week supply. Um, data was collected at days 3, 7, 14, and 21 post-enrollment. And there were a few different outcomes that they looked at. The primary outcome was numerical pain rating scale from 0 to 10. Uh, they asked to rate their mean pain over the prior 24 hours. Uh, and then there was sort of a mean of the daily mean pain scores that was collected uh, from days 1 to 7 post-discharge. There were also some secondary questions that looked at things like mobility, self-care, ability to get back to the usual activities. Um, and then they also monitor adverse events. And this was an intention to treat analysis. Okay, gotcha. So just to clarify, they were in hospital because of a fracture that needed a surgery. Surgery was done. Their pain was being controlled. And then at the time of discharge, they are randomized to oxycodone, 
uh, at two different doses or Tylenol plus codeine at two different doses. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. And, you know, while in hospital, everyone would have been on the oxycodone as part of their pain management. Gotcha. Okay. What did the patients look like who were included? Uh, so 899 patients were screened, of which 161 were deemed eligible and 134 consented. Ultimately, 120 were randomized. Uh, the mean age was 37. Uh, 87% had a single fracture with most involving a lower extremity bone. Was this, uh, was it the right thing to do? Low dose versus, uh, I guess I shouldn't say low dose versus high dose. Really, what was better, oxycodone or just uh, codeine plus Tylenol? Well, you know, kind of showed that there was not really a big difference. Um, so from days one to seven, the mean daily pain score was 4.04 in those in the oxycodone group compared to 4.54 in the codeine and Tylenol group. This was a difference of 0.5 and uh, typically that would not be considered clinically meaningful. Um, there were a higher number of adverse events in the strong opioid group, though this was not statistically significant. And then other things included that, like, you know, the morphine equivalent dosing. So in those that were on the oxycodone, the morphine equivalent dosing was like 32.9 milligrams versus 5.5 in those in the codeine group. So, you know, not really a big difference in the way of uh, pain control. Uh, signal for higher adverse events in those that were on oxycodone. Yeah, like uh, this seems like a no brainer here, but uh, what were the main limitations? You know, I guess some things would just be generalizability to some of the patients that we might see on the consult service or patients admitted to medicine for surgical problems, which does happen sometimes. Um, you know, they excluded fragility fractures among older adults. So, you know, might not be generalizable to them based on this study alone. You know, interestingly, you know, why didn't both groups just get Tylenol? Just so that we can say it's not the Tylenol that's having a major effect. I mean, I think we all know that Tylenol is not a perfect analgesic medication, but I'm just a little surprised surprised that uh, it was kind of a oxycodone on its own and not oxycodone plus Tylenol uh, versus codeine and Tylenol alone. But maybe the concern was that if you're going to give someone a weaker opioid, then you got to give them something else to ensure that there's some, you know, meaningful pain control from maybe like an ethical perspective. I don't really know. Yeah, or maybe just a placebo effect. So people felt like they were getting something more. I don't know. But uh, I mean, this is pretty impressive, right? For most of our pain management, we base those decisions off of just what we've done. And what we've done is usually just based on what somebody told us to do at some point in time. So I'm pretty impressed by this trial. But um, what's a take home point for you? Uh, so the take home is that there are similar pain outcomes when comparing oxycodone to a weaker opioid like codeine. Yeah. Is this uh, practice changing? I mean, I think it's a it's an important reminder that less is more. Um, and there is concern that like the initial opioid exposure, including the total dose, the type of opioid and the duration that it was prescribed does increase the risk for long term use, misuse and overdose. So if you can get away with something that's going to provide, you know, similar as good pain control and might put them at lower risk for dangerous things down the road, I think that's important to consider. Yeah, 100%. I mean, at Sinai, I often attend on the orthopedics unit, not as an orthopod, but as, uh, you know, as the internist slash hospitalist. And this is practice changing for me. Uh, I'm going to start prescribing patients on discharge, um, you know, this combination of codeine and Tylenol. And I'll probably also start doing this for pain management for other conditions on the internal medicine ward. I think far too often, I know I reach to opioids and relatively strong opioids because that's what the order sets look like. So yeah, this is certainly practice changing for me, I think.
I know. I, I think it's really important. I mean, I always remember this one like kind of clinical nuanced piece that there are going to be those patients out there that might not respond to codeine. And so I guess, you know, what might be nice to see is maybe trialing the medication while in hospital to ensure that they're going to get the analgesia they, they require from it. Because what is it? It's like up to 10% of the population or something is not able to metabolize it properly based on those SIP2D6s that I no longer remember anything about. Yeah, yeah, me neither. So I'm just going to move on to my <laughs> article. Um, so, so I'm going to talk about uh, you know effectiveness of an analytics-based intervention for reducing sleep interruption in hospitalized patients. A randomized trial. This was published in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine um, by a group out at UCSF. Uh, so, what was the research question here? Uh, can a clinical decision support tool help physicians identify? clinically stable patients uh, and thus safely discontinue their overnight vital sign checks. I know I love my sleep, uh, but why did you think this was important? Yep. The two things I like, uh, sleep and uh, they use some fancy uh, algorithms. So yeah, I'm a nerd. Uh, This definitely caught my eye. And, you know, I'm actually thinking back to, you know, times when, you know, family members of ours were in hospital and you don't realize that People don't sleep when they're in hospital because we have stupid things like checking vitals every four hours or running continuous fluids and the IV keeps beeping as somebody, you know, flexes their arm as they curl up to go to bed. So this just really caught my eye. Yeah, I like that. You know, if, if this can help to get people better rest in hospital, then great. So what was the study design here? So this is a randomized controlled trial um, where uh, at the hospitalization level, um, there was randomization to intervention versus usual care, all embedded within the electronic health record. So um, the actual intervention was a clinical decision support notification that essentially informed the physician whether or not their patient had a very high likelihood of having normal vital signs in the upcoming evening and thus to maybe think about stopping the nighttime vital signs um, as a result. I won't actually do a deep dive into how they developed the um, algorithm itself. So uh, take my word for it. Uh, it's impressive. And they sort of used most of the state-of-the-art um, tools for uh, developing and validating a clinical algorithm. And really, what did this algorithm show? It showed like um, over 90% probability that the patient would have normal vital signs during the upcoming night. As an example, if you're looking after a patient, this algorithm is humming um, in the background, uh, calculating the probability of uh, your patient having normal vital signs. It would then randomize you to either get a prompt to inform you of this, like a bit of a nudge um, to, to then stop the vital signs that evening, or there would be nothing alerting you. So that's sort of how this worked. Uh, the primary outcome was um, delirium. You know, was there potentially going to be an association with a reduction in delirium? There are a number of secondary outcomes, such as um, the mean number of vital signs checked overnight as well as uh, potential harms like ICU transfer, code blue, and also uh, patient questionnaires for satisfaction. Okay, the algorithm sounds pretty neat. I mean, these uh, computers these days, eh? Jeez, they're really doing our job for us. Uh, What do the patients look like? 
Yeah, they sure are. So um, there were 1,900 inpatient encounters that corresponded to 1,700 patients. Um, 59% were men, mean age of 53, uh, 45% Caucasian, and 90% spoke English. That's all we have in terms of the baseline characteristics. Okay. Uh, What did they find? So um, remember, the randomization is sort of to alert the provider versus not alert the provider among patients who had a 90% probability of having normal vital signs. So the first outcome was number of alerts. If you got randomized to the alert, in total there was almost 1,400 alerts, whereas in the control arm there were zero alerts. That sounds like a lot. On a per-patient basis or per-hospitalization basis, that's maybe one or two. So as a result of this, it led to 80% of encounters in the intervention arm having a reduction in their overnight orders. Now, in the control arm, there was also a reduction, but that was on the magnitude of about 45%, um, as opposed to the noted 80% for the intervention arm. And if we drill down further, interestingly, only 60% of the time were the vital signs sort of reduced when the prompt was given and done so in a timely fashion. So um, how often were nighttime vital signs checked in the intervention arm? Uh, About 6,000 times in total. In the control arm, about 8,000 times in total. Remember, the primary outcome was um, incidents in delirium. There was no difference in the incidence rate of delirium between the two groups, 11% versus 13%. Um, So really, as mentioned, the main outcome was there was a reduction in the mean number of times that vital signs were checked. If you want a take-home number, about a 30% reduction. And there was no signs of harm, no increase in ICU transfers or code blues, and also um, greater sleep opportunity uh, for patients who were randomized to uh, this intervention arm. Not many people filled out the patient survey uh, for uh, patient satisfaction, so no data there. Okay, interesting. I mean, I think it is definitely like reassuring that there weren't higher rates of code blues or ICU transfers because it is a little nerve wracking to think that I'm going to leave it up to the machine to tell me if I should stop checking their vitals. Like I like to, you know, kind of use my clinical decision on my own. But, um, you know, I think maybe there's a few limitations to talk about. But what did you think? Yeah, there certainly are a few limitations. This is a single center study. Um, I also wonder if it should instead be cluster randomized, you know, so At Sinai, let's say, for example, we get randomized to having this intervention occurring versus not. And another hospital, you know, same thing. The fact that it wasn't cluster randomized means there can be some contamination. So if I'm seeing a patient and they got, you know, randomized to the intervention and I get this alert, well, guess what? I might now think to myself, oh, I should reduce other patients' vital signs this evening. So so that's one, I think, major problem here. I also don't think delirium should have been the endpoint. It's, I think, just ambitious to think you could maybe reduce delirium. I, I wonder if a better endpoint just would have been like number of hours of sleep. So those are a few limitations uh, that I could think of. Yeah. And I think you really already highlighted it. Like there's a lot of things that happen at night. And so for sure, doing one less thing of checking the vitals less frequently, I think is important. But like, what about like the 5 a.m. medications or the 4.30 a.m. blood work that's done? Like that's all going to play a role into risk for things like delirium, presumably, but more importantly, like kind of quality of life. It would have been nice if more people filled out those satisfaction surveys too, I think. Um, But anyways, what's the take-home point here? 
take home point is people don't like filling out surveys, <laughs> full stop. <laughs> um, you know, I think this is such a cool and innovative study. And I, I think we should just order less vital signs in general. So um, Christine Sung at Mount Sinai, where I work, um, launched an initiative that sort of gave autonomy to nurses to reduce the number of vital signs, the frequency of them, um, after a patient's been stable for 48 hours in hospital. I think that's really smart. And um, now we're working to try to implement this because it sucks for patients. It sucks for nurses. And it can lead to more work, more data to be processed. So I really think if the person's stable after a couple of days, yeah, like just shut her down. <laughs> Once a day is probably good enough. Um, so my take home point, I guess, is like, this is cool. And I think we should be thinking more about how do we improve the patient's experience when they're in hospital. Yeah, I like that. Um, changing practice for you. I mean, it sounds like you guys are already kind of working on incorporating this. Like as a result of this article, to be honest, that sort of lit a fire under me to think, man, maybe we can do something about this. And then it turns out Christine Sung has already been working in this area. So um, as well as a number of palliative care docs uh, led by Dr. Ramona Matani, you know, we're now trying to put this into to practice. So, yep, definitely practice changing. Yeah, that's cool. At least on our system, we got a little option. You can drop down for like Q4 hours while awake. And I like stepping down to that, uh, you know, for the patients that have been stable for that good day or two. Oh, that's really smart. I, I like that. Okay, maybe we'll steal that from you. Uh, yeah, please do. <laughs> all right, John. So moving on to to the good stuff. Uh, what caught your eye this week? Ah, uh, the good stuff. Uh, there's a little video from Dig.com that's kind of fun to watch. It's a little long, but essentially uh, the filmmakers get that. Well, how do you film these scenes where a mirror is involved without seeing the camera? And yeah, I mean, you know. We'll cut to the chase. Sure, it does involve some blue or green screens, but it's kind of cool. There's more to it than just that. So uh, check it out. It's interesting. Good to know. I just assume they just picked an angle or something like that, but I will, I'll go down that rabbit hole and learn more. Um, so, so mine was really on the topic of sleep. And I guess rabbit holes, you know, you can start watching TED Talks and it leads to another TED Talk and blah, blah, blah. But I think you'll really like this one. So um, it's all about how to trick your brain to fall asleep. The, the narrative, the story itself is by this guy who's a drummer. And um, he talks about how before, you know, he just like couldn't sleep, would get a few hours of sleep each night and sort of the adverse consequences of that. And then he learned something called frequency following response. I've never heard of that before, but essentially it's that your brain loves to follow patterns. So he realized he could just sort of be drumming on his legs as he closed his eyes, was getting ready to sleep. And then his brain would just focus on that. And then he'd slow down the rhythm of the drumming and sort of time it with his breathing. And when I sort of listen to this, it's like, oh, come on, give me a break. But for the past week, I've done this and it's worked every single time. So kind of cool. And I think you're the musician in the family. So uh, you might also, um, you know, be interested in this. Oh, I am intrigued. I mean, I've been pretty lucky, but I've had like insomnia a couple of times in my life and I would not wish that on my worst enemy. So uh, anything that helps people sleep better is very appealing. I'll check that out. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, a couple of times in your life, I feel like Every other human who listens to this podcast will officially hate you because we all suffer from more insomnia than that. Yeah, I've, I've been a good sleeper most of my life. <laughs> lucky you, lucky you. Okay, cool, John. Uh, well, yeah, great to, great to chat and um, stay safe in Calgary and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, talk to you later. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. 
Also thanks to founder of the Roundtable, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.